Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome uh, once again to our Sunday morning Bible study. If you got your Bible and you'd like to follow along, uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to be in the final verses of this great chapter, uh, verses 12 through 19. Uh, the title of our lesson is A Final Word on Suffering. So let's go ahead first and read our verses. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, if you've been with me uh, the last few weeks in our study of First Peter, you've probably figured something out by now, and that is that this book, or this letter, is predominantly uh, about suffering. And today, as we come to these last verses in chapter 4, this is really, uh, in this letter, Peter's last word uh, on the, the subject. And, and in these verses, we have a, a pretty good theology uh, of suffering, uh, if you will. But before we go there, I want to kind of uh, go 180 degrees the other way or, or look at the other side of the coin and look at the world's uh, theology on suffering. Now, some people may take exceptions with that word theology, uh, when it comes to the world, and, and, and they might rather use the word uh, philosophy, but either one is fine with me. Now, the world or our culture has a philosophy or a theology of suffering that you can easily sum up in two words, and we've all seen it on bumper stickers. And uh, a lot of times it uses a very vulgar term uh, to express this. I'm going to use the, uh, the G rating today, of course, as we, as we should. And uh, I'll just say it this way, stuff happens. And we've seen it, all, like I said, we've all seen it on, on bumper stickers. So as a teacher, let's, uh, let's exegete this slogan or let's, let's break this slogan down. The, the first thing this uh, slogan tells us or this theology believes is that suffering is basically equal to dung. In other words, suffering is not just worthless, it's, it's repugnant. It's, it's disgusting. It has absolutely no value. The, the second word here, happens, is what it's telling us here is that the world believes that suffering is just senseless. It, it's absolutely random. It's like a, a drive-by shooting where a bullet goes into a house a block away and, and kills a, a child. There's no reason. There's no provocation. There's, it, it, just, it just happens. Now, let me say this. Christians, of course... We must categorically disagree with that type of thinking. And, and it should go without saying, as we'll see today, that it, this is a view of suffering that is radically opposed to what the Bible teaches and what Peter teaches uh, specifically. So, let, let's come to our verses and let's look at 
first of all, the situation that Peter is addressing. Now, Peter is foreseeing some type of, of suffering. Uh, I don't think it's already happening to him um, because he wouldn't say don't be surprised. Uh, I think he's looking ahead and he sees it coming. And so he writes this letter to believers and he says, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at, and he calls it, a fiery trial. Now, if he didn't tell us anything else about it, we wouldn't, of course, know very much. But he goes on and actually gives us more information. For example, in, thir in verse 13, he says, you share Christ's sufferings. In verse 14, he says, you're insulted for the name of Christ. And then in verse 16, he says, you're suffering as a Christian. Now, that, that last one there is pretty, uh, pretty significant. The term Christian only occurs three times in the entire New Testament. Once here in Peter and twice in the book of Acts. And what a lot of people don't know, they know what it means. It means little Christ. What you may not know is that term was not coined by the church. It was actually coined by pagans. It was coined by uh, those outside the church as a derogatory term. It wasn't meant as a as something of honor. It wasn't meant as, as as anything good. It was meant as a derogatory term to be called a, quote, little uh, Christ. So what we know from those verses is that suffering is going to come to these believers because they're following in the way. They are identifying with Christ. They are open about their uh, allegiance to him. And the world is, is labeling them, uh, as a derogatory term, uh, a Christian or a little Christ. Now, so we know they're suffering because, again, they're of their uh, allegiance and their relationship to Christ. Verse 17 gives us even more information about this trial. It says this, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, what this tells us is this suffering is in a way a form of God's judgment. And God's judgment starts with believers. It starts in the church and then it spreads to unbelievers. Now, let's be honest. <laughs> that doesn't sound very comforting. Somebody comes to you and, and you're being maligned, you're being arrested, you're being in prison and uh, for believing in Jesus, and somebody says, hey, this is the judgment of God. You're being judged just like unbelievers. But let's be very careful, because that is not what it is saying. Look at verse 18. It says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly? You see, this makes it plain that this suffering, this judgment, that's beginning at the house of God, is not a judgment of wrath. It's not a judgment that's leading to condemnation. Instead, as it says, the righteous are scarcely saved. It's leading to salvation. So, so what is this suffering about then? Well, verse 12, uh, Peter told us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. See, this judgment that comes upon the church, that comes upon believers, it's a test. It, it's meant to refine the believer's faith, not to condemn them. It, it's an expression of his love, not his wrath. Peter's already told us this, by the way. We studied this back in chapter 1. 
He said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, this is a very important distinction to make. The same act of judgment, the same uh, suffering, can be a purifying love for believers, and it can be a punishing wrath for unbelievers. You see, folks, listen to me. There is no promise, none in Scripture, that believers will escape tribulation. None. What is promised is that when God's judgment comes, it will begin with the church, and it will end with unbelievers. For the unbelievers, it'll be the fires of wrath. It, it'll be completely different. But for us, it is the fire of purifying love. Verse 19 gives us one final detail regarding this suffering that's coming to these believers. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Listen, there are people, good people, uh, who struggle with the concept of suffering and God's role in it. And I completely understand that. This, If you talk to anybody about things they struggle with, the idea of suffering in this world, the things that we just can't explain, it, we struggle with that, and especially with God's role in it. But the problem is, is that some of these people attempt to solve the problem by saying it's not God's will. God doesn't have anything to do with that. The problem with that is these people have to take a long detour around this verse. Because Peter is, is telling us very clearly here that there are people who are going to suffer for Christ and it's going to be God's will for it to happen. You see, we know that while God doesn't cause suffering or cause all suffering, He certainly does allow it. You know, our theology on suffering is, is completely different from the world. Theirs is stuff happens. Our theology on suffering should be God's will happens. You see, no suffering comes our way except that which God has purposed both for our good and for His glory. It's never random and it's never senseless. It's always part of a divine plan. Therefore, when the Christian endures suffering, we, we dare not view it as a negative experience, something that we just have to get through, that we just have to endure. It is an experience in which we can rejoice. And that is exactly what Peter is going to teach us in today's text. So, we've got this suffering. Uh, they are suffering because they have an allegiance to Christ, because they are defined by Christ. They are little Christians. Part of this suffering is God's judgment. We, we've already seen that. It's a purifying, it's a refining uh, judgment that's coming to, to make them more like Christ, if you, um, if you will. And then, as we, uh, as we just saw, and just back up here, it's also God's will for it to uh, happen. So, here we are, we're facing this suffering. What should these believers do in the face of this suffering? Peter's just told us that being in the center of God's will may mean that you're in the center of suffering. So what he's going to do, he's going to give us some admonitions. He's going to admonish us to do some things. And I'm going to tell you right up front 
that what he's going to ask us to do is going to be hard. Now, you may ask, well, why is it hard? Well, it's not hard to hear. Anybody can hear something and then walk away and not do it. What makes it hard is because it's hard to apply. But these things that he's going to ask us to do are necessary and they're absolutely useful because none of us gets out of this life without suffering. Nobody gets out of this life without going through a hard time. So let me give you a few things he tells us. Number one, the first thing he tells us right off the bat is do not be surprised. Verse 12, let's read it again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening uh, to you. Now, let's be really honest here. I, I, I don't know about you. I've heard this verse probably thousands of times. and We know Peter's words. Um, as I said, this isn't the first time we've heard them. But the fact is, for most of us, we often are surprised. Uh, when suffering comes into our life. John Newton, who is the uh, author of the song Amazing Grace, he wrote another hymn, and, and these are the words to that hymn. He said, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue this worm to death? This is the way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break the schemes of earthly joy that you may seek your all in me. You see, the fact is, if you're a Christian, it's not if you go through a trial. You must be tested and refined through trials. This happened to me at one point in my life. I'm very familiar with what I'm teaching through personal experience. I, I had a trial come. I had a some suffering come into my life. And, uh, and at the time, I was much too immature to know what was happening. And I didn't know it at the time, but I had a real problem. And my problem was that I subscribed to the world's theology on suffering. Now, I, I knew the Bible. I thought I knew the Bible. I thought I knew who God was, but I didn't. I didn't really know Him. I didn't really know the Word. It wasn't deep inside me. And so what happened, when it happened to me, I wasn't just surprised. I was absolutely shocked that it could happen to me. I remember thinking, well, this happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. Now, here was my underlying problem. And I mentioned it just a second ago. I didn't really know God. I thought I did. I had a view of God, but it wasn't the right view of God. See, my theology was sorely lacking. And I want you to listen to me very closely here because you can miss this. When Peter says, don't be surprised... It's an admonition to know what God is really like. It's an admonition for before it comes, go ahead now and, and get to know who God really is. Go ahead and, and fill yourself up with a true and a deep theology. You see, if you know God, 
then you'll know that sometimes He wills for His people to suffer. We saw that in 1 Peter. If you know God, really know Him, then you'll know that sometimes He brings suffering to test us. Again, we just saw that in Peter. If you know that the King Himself suffered, and how much more His servants will, if you know all of this, then you really know God. And when your trial comes, when your suffering comes, you won't be surprised. Now listen, it may seem strange. I I heard somebody say the other day, and this is exactly true, sometimes God's ways seem strange. And that's because His ways are not our ways. If, if, If you go to a foreign country and you're raised a certain way, and you go to a foreign country, their ways are going to seem strange because they're not American ways. Your ways seem strange to them. That's why God's ways seem strange sometimes. But and that's okay because they're not our ways. But if you know Him and you know His ways, when it happens, you won't be surprised. You're not going to be one of these people who, who raise your fist and say, Where is God in my suffering? Listen, I don't want to be one of those people who dishonor God by thinking that every time we suffer, God has somehow dropped the ball. He sometimes lost the reins and, and it's just going off the tracks here. I want to be one of those who trust Him, who believes that He is a faithful Creator who only has my best interest at heart. Let me tell you, you may weep for the pain, and that's okay. You may be angry at the sin inside yourself or, or angry at the sin inside others who are coming against you. You may be all those things, but you will not be surprised. Because your knowledge of God, your theology, will not let you be thrown into confusion or uncertainty. You know that He is the all-faithful, all-powerful Creator, and He's always faithful to His people. Number two, Peter admonishes us to entrust your soul to a faithful Creator. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. You know, I've been teaching this class for a long time, and uh, most of the time, of course, on site, in the building, and, and for the past few months this way. Why do we study the Bible? I mean, really, we, we have Bible studies. Churches all over the world are having Bible studies. Churches for 2,000 years have had Bible studies. Why? We study the Bible so that we have a right view of God. I, I don't. I, it's not. I don't want to know Him because somebody told me He's a certain way. I don't want to learn of Him from nursery rhymes or from movies or from fairy tales. I want to. I want to look in His Word that He's revealed Himself. That's how I know who God really is. And the purpose of knowing who God is, of having a right view, a good theology is to build and sustain faith. Listen, every time a Christian suffers, Satan is there in that situation seeking to devour your faith. God is in that same situation seeking to test and refine your faith. We saw this in our study of Job. God's great purpose in all our suffering will be accomplished when we do exactly what Jesus did on the cross. In Luke 23, Jesus called out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit or I entrust my spirit. You see, Jesus entrusted himself to a faithful creator and he wants us to do the same. Number three, 
Peter admonishes us to rejoice in our suffering. Verse 13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Okay, now let's just be really honest. This is where the lesson gets really hard. So I want to say a couple things about this before we move on and look at this in more detail. First, what Peter is asking us to do is humanly impossible. Okay, It's just humanly impossible. It's, it's to have joy in the middle of pain. To have joy in the middle of suffering, I just I don't think it's it's humanly possible to do. In fact, only true Christians can do it, because only the Spirit of God within us can supernaturally produce joy in the midst of suffering and trials. The second thing is, we don't rejoice in the trial itself. You know, there's a word we have for that. It's called being a masochist. It means loving pain. That's weird. That's not normal. If somebody likes to be hurt, uh, we know. We call them a masochist. That's, that's not normal. That's, that's perverted. Nothing changes here. He's not telling us to rejoice because of the pain, because of the trial itself. We rejoice because we know there's purpose in it. We rejoice because we know that ultimate good will come out of it. A couple of verses, Romans 5. Paul says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There he is, same thing Peter said. Why, Paul? Because we know that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. James said the same thing in James chapter 1. Count it all joy. There he is again. Rejoice, my brothers and sisters. When you meet trials of various kinds. Well, why, James? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's just another word for endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's, it's this odd thing, right? The mark of a Christian is that we will experience a greater and a deeper joy being dishonored by Christ, with Christ, than being honored by men. You see, Peter personally had experienced this. In Acts chapter 5, they were, uh, he and the other apostles, or some of the other apostles, were pulled in before the council. And uh, they were beaten. And they were told, when you leave here, do not preach in that name anymore. And Acts chapter 5 says, when they left the presence of the council, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You see, if you love and admire someone so much and you get lumped in together with them and treated the same way as them, because you love and admire them so much, you would consider that a great honor. Number four, Paul gives us one final admonishment and that is to glorify God. Verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We've said this many times uh, in this lesson in First Peter, but God gets glory from us when we put Him on display. When we speak and we live in a way that puts His attributes out there for the world to see. You see, if you trust Him, you're showing the world that He's gloriously trustworthy. If you rejoice in sufferings for His sake, you're showing the world that he is gloriously valuable. 
If you do good to your persecutors instead of reviling them and trying to get revenge, you're showing that he is a glorious judge. See, the one all-consuming desire of true Christians should be this, that Christ be glorified in our bodies, glorified in the words we speak, the actions we take, both in life and in death. Now, I wanted to close. As I was going through this lesson, there was one thing that really jumped out at me. And I thought, you know, when I close the lesson, I want to, I want to focus in on that. And uh, so this will be a little bit different. I mean, it, it still goes with the same theme, but I kind of wanted to break it out a little bit differently. And, and that is this, the Spirit will help you die. I was reading a story the other day. In, uh, in AD 202, the Roman emperor, emperor Septimus Severus, uh, he issued an edict or he made a law that conversion to Christianity was illegal. And this, uh, of course, this uh, uh, persecution was felt all over the empire, but it was felt probably more more severe in anywhere else in a place called Carthage uh, on the North African coast. There was a, a girl, her name was Vibia Perpetua. Uh, she was a, a Roman. Uh, she came from a good family. She wasn't a slave or uh, a servant girl or anything like that. She was 22 years old. She had an infant son who was uh, was still nursing. And she had become a believer. And she was attending a Bible study class run by a man named Saturus. And the authorities broke in and they arrested everyone attending that Bible class. Now, the reason we know about this story that happened 1,800 years ago is because she kept a diary while she was in prison. And you can you can Google her name. You can still go and read her diary uh, today. Now, uh, I'm going to tell you she was executed. So uh, when you read the story, somebody added on the last section uh, when she was when she was killed. But the majority of the story is her diary, her thoughts um, and things while she was in in prison. She was sentenced to die along with all the other people in the Bible study class. And on the day of execution, the men were taken first. And, and as I mentioned, one of the first ones to go was a man by the name of Saturus who was teaching the Bible study class. And these men were put out into an arena uh, with some wild animals, a bear, a leopard, and a wild boar. And of course, the animals set upon them um, and, just, and just mangled them, just, just ripped them to pieces. And the spectators watching this shouted, He is well baptized. Just, just making fun. I, I, mean, I can't even... What, what does that say about a group of people that can take enjoyment um, in something like that? Nevertheless, they were killed and the women went next. And, and they shamed them by stripping them down naked. And they put them in there with a, a mad heifer is the description. Now, I'm, not, I'm assuming this is some kind of uh, crazy cow. Um, I, I'm not sure what the right term is here. But this, whatever this animal was, it just began to just torture them. And it actually became so bad that the crowd said, enough. That, I mean, I guess they didn't have a problem with the men, but with these young women, they said, enough. And so the women were pulled out, and they were taken to the executioner. As Perpetua was, was or Perpetua was being uh, taken away, go by her, she went and saw some of her friends. And she said this, Give out the word to the brothers and sisters. 
Stand fast in the faith, love one another, and don't let our suffering become a stumbling block to you. You know, over the years uh, that I've been a Christian, I've heard many stories like that. I've I've read many stories like that. I remember one time reading uh, Fox book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, which was published in, I think, 1560 or 1565, somewhere in that range. Um, if you've never read it, I, I would encourage you to, to read that book. You can read it online. You don't even have to buy it. But when you hear these types of stories, my recurring thought has never been, why does God let that happen? I've never even thought that. After all, Jesus promised it us that it would happen. He told they'll they'll take you before councils. They'll kill you and think they're doing God a favor. If they hated me, they'll hate you. We were told over and over and over again that this kind of thing would happen. So that's never been my thought. My recurring thought when I hear a story like this is could I do that? Could I take the pain? Could I take the torture? Could I stand being separated from my children, from my uh, wife, from my grandchildren, from my family? Would I be a coward or would I have the courage? See, I think the, the key here is ask ourselves the question, where would we get the strength to do something like she did? I mean, it's happened over and over again. She isn't alone. Where do these people get the strength to bear up under these things? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 14 of today's passage. It says this, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, I don't think God, when, when somebody like Vivia uh, Perpetua was dying, I don't think God is standing aloof. I don't think he's, he's, he's standing there like a taskmaster as you take your final exam to see if you pass. No. No. I think the Spirit of God is going to rest upon you at that moment. I think the Spirit of God is going to come to you and He's going to strengthen you and He's going to sustain you. In fact, go back and look at verse 13. Peter said this, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, the word used there for share is koinonio, and it means to fellowship with. That when we suffer, we're literally fellowshipping with, with Christ. That's, that's what it means. Now, Peter, when he says we share his sufferings, he is no way equating our suffering to Christ. Christ's sufferings were penal and substitutionary. Penal means it was a punishment for sins. Substitutionary means he suffered for somebody else. Our suffering is never those things. It's not penal because we're Christians. He's already paid the price and it's not substitutionary. We're not going through it for somebody else. But when we suffer, it draws our hearts into a deeper fellowship with him. When we suffer for him, he's always there with us. This is borne out again and again in Scripture. Let me give you one. Daniel 3.25. Nebuchadnezzar throws the three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into this fiery furnace. And then he looks in and he says this, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know it was the son of God. But that was Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, walking in that fire with them. Acts chapter 7, Stephen said this, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Before he had to go through the stoning, before he had to be killed, God gave him a vision 
of Jesus Christ. And it sustained him through that. Acts chapter 18, Paul is is coming into the city and he's being violently opposed. They're reviling him. Um, and it says the Lord came to him in a vision and said, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Acts chapter 23, another situation where he was in fear of his life. And he said the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Um, another time when he was standing and he had to defend himself before a court, he said this, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me. And all my friends deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. See, all of these are basically just reiterating what Jesus Christ himself said. I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Therefore, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Corrie ten Boom tells a story. You know, she grew up in uh, during World War II. She was a young girl, and uh, she worried all the time about the Germans and what if they came and what if they threatened her and and what if they tried to force her to uh, to to renounce her faith in Christ. And and when she would think about this, she would feel so weak. Uh, she just feel like, I just don't know if I can do it. And one day she was discussing this with her father, and he gave her an illustration. He said, Corey, he said, when you and I are going to take a journey on a, on, a, on a train, do I give you the th- tickets three weeks ahead, or do I give it to you right as you get on the train? And she said, well, right as I get on the train. And he said, well, that's exactly what God does. He gives us the strength we need to be strong in the face of death just when we need it, not days before, not weeks before, but right when we need it. And I believe that's exactly what God does, whether we're facing martyrdom or whether we're just facing a normal death. I just believe with all of my heart, Jesus said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. He's always there giving us exactly what we need when we need it. Let's pray. Father, as always, we love you. We thank you for this wonderful word. Thank you for this great four chapters of 1 Peter. And and we know it's been predominantly about suffering. God, I just pray today, help us to know you. Help us not to just hear these words and walk away and go back to this picture that we had in our minds of what you're like. But let us take your word at face value. Let us believe that your word is your revealed word. You're showing us who you are. And let us stand on that rock, that steady, good, uh, pure theology of your word. Father, help us, as I know you will, if suffering comes, trials, tribulations. God, be with us. Strengthen us. Help us to glorify you in whatever we go through. In Jesus' name, amen.